Welcome to episode 212 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Max Fawcett. He's the National Observer's lead columnist, was host of the Maxed Out podcast, which I gather is going to be wrapping up this season and won't be renewed, but was I, I did invite you to check out past episodes. And we're going to be talking about the attack on expertise and the spread of energy policy misinformation in Alberta. He joins us from Calgary, where I'm headed next week to record more interviews for our Unethical Oil Investigative Series. So welcome to the interview, Max. Thanks for having me. I think you inadvertently scooped uh, the news about the podcast. We haven't really talked about it over at The Observer. So uh, I'll just say uh, that it, so far, it doesn't look like we're going to be doing a second season in the near future. Um, like the format, love the guests. Um, but I think we're going to we're going to play with with the concept a little bit. I will be back to podcasting at some point. Uh, even though I prefer being a guest to being a host, I won't lie to you. But uh, we'll we'll figure out something that that works for everyone probably in the new year. So stay tuned on that front. One of the things I found interesting was the format for Max, though, because the the premise is that you uh, you talk to people that you disagree with, and well, give us tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I was just I I, I worry that we are ever more falling into these these narrow silos where we only talk to people we agree with and we only hear arguments that are the arguments that we believe. And so the exercise for me was to try to push those boundaries a little bit to talk to people who don't see the world the way I do and try to understand, um, you know, how they think about things and help them understand how I think about things. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, we initially started you know, sort of tinkering, I started tinkering with the idea of wanting to sort of have a podcast where I debated people, right? Like, you know, get David Parker on as an example, not, not that he would ever do it and not that I would ever do it, but someone like that and, and then just have it out. But, you know, that I don't think people come to the podcast space to hear people kind of bickering at each other or being antagonistic. So it, it evolved into just more of a attempt to understand, attempt to expand the conversation. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, but I'll be honest, podcasts are a lot of work, uh, and especially podcasts like that. You know, podcast where I show up and I'm just, you know, having an opinion about the news of the day doesn't require a, a ton of preparation. But to talk to someone who I disagree with about a subject, you know, you really got to put the work in. So, um, you know, podcasts uh, are great, but they're not. You know, they have to they have to kind of generate a return for everyone, and so that's sort of the part that we're trying to wrap our heads around: is how do we do something? uh th that's a win for everyone uh and, and you know as i said stay tuned well i have one more point about your podcast and it's going to be a bit of a segue into our in today's topic and that is i want to and because i kind of want to illustrate how i wouldn't do i couldn't do what you did with that podcast and that is you interviewed derek fildebrandt of the western standard online and and mm. i don't have any problem with that i mean good on you but I, Phil DeBrandt is one of those, he's a former MLA in, in Alberta. He's very, very far right. I'm not going to call him conservative because I don't think he is. And uh, the Western Standard has been getting more and more and more. Uh, it's larded with misinformation. It's exactly the kind of uh, right-wing, alt-right, quote-unquote, media source that I, I would criticize in today's podcast. And I, I did you have any trouble interviewing Phil DeBrand? I know he can be a charming guy, but I just find his the politics of the Western Standard online so repellent, I couldn't talk to him. I think we focus too much on what we disagree with other people on, especially when we're on in, in the sort of online space. And so there's lots that I disagree with Derek about, but on kind of core matters of uh, uh, most core matters, uh, you know, the ones that really matter. I, I don't, I don't think he's as far offside as maybe you think he's offside. You know, I think, um, certainly the Western standard publishes some of the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, there's lots of, uh, misinformation about climate that's on there and it's all, it's objectionable. Um, but 
you know, I don't think that you can reach his his subscribers, his followers, that that world by just kind of writing it off. I still believe that there's value in trying to reach out uh, and at least get your point across um, and, and understand uh, where there might be areas of of common interest. Um, because I think it's it, it, just from a personal survival level, a personal maintenance level, um, it's depressing to think that you live in a world where you disagree so vehemently with so many people, right? If you, you think that, oh, well, you know, there's the Derek Philibrands of the world out there and I just, we don't disagree, we don't agree on anything. And it's not true. There's lots of things you agree on. Um, and there's certainly things you don't, but I, I think we forget that we share this space called society with people and, and we share it with people. We disagree with things on that, that. That was always the case. It will always be the case. And we have to learn how to talk across the fence a little more effectively than I think certainly the algorithms on social media are training us to do. Well, I want to talk about Alberta premier, Danielle Smith. And and uh, maybe not so much attack on expertise, though there is some of that, but certainly the spread of energy policy misinformation. And and there's a segue here with the Western Standard Online because, I mean, Western Standard is almost like the United Conservative Party's house organ. It's like the Pravda of, of the, the UCP, in my opinion. Uh, and... You know, that's that's a, a place where, uh, like, for instance, you know, Rebel Media, Western Standard, they get interviews with Danielle Smith. I, I requested an interview. No go. So, yep. you know, they, she very carefully, she'll she'll put herself out there and she'll talk about their advertising campaign that they recently had in the rest of Canada about the uh, federal clean electricity regulations, that sort of thing. And they just give her free reign to spread all of that stuff. And and so I, I'm I'd I'd be curious to know what your opinion is of that particular campaign and Smith in general. Oof. It's a big subject. I mean, I will say it's interesting to me that um organizations like the Western Standard love to talk about how they don't take government money. But uh, there was a recent uh I can't remember if it was a news item or if it was just on Twitter, but uh, essentially noting that that the Western Standard does take government money. It just takes it from the government of Alberta. Um, the government of Alberta was paying it, I guess, as some sort of licensing. Maybe it was a paywall uh, purchase, but, you know, they 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 took money, in a, you know, in in a check or in digital e-transfer e from the government of Alberta. So, uh, you know, it, it's always interesting where those where those principles uh, kind of fall apart or at least are, are stood down a little bit. Um, I, I don't begrudge Daniel Smith for talking to people or talking to journalists that are going to give her a very favorable hearing that are not going to push back against her. To some extent, all politicians do that. Um, and I, you know, the growth of the the kind of right wing media ecosystem gives them more options than they used to have in terms of uh, spaces where they can just kind of come on, share their message, not have any tough questions and, 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 and go home for the day. Um, you know, as to the, the the advertising campaign, the stuff around the Alberta pension plan, um, it's it's offensive to me on a lot of levels. Um, you know, I, I think there, you know, uh, there is an argument that you can make for an Alberta pension plan. It, it is not the argument that she's making or the province is making. It is a much narrower argument. It is a much more uh, difficult argument. Um, but there is a universe in which... Um, Albertans would pay slightly lower uh, premiums and possibly get slightly better benefits. That comes with a whole bunch of attendant risk that 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 her government is not talking about at all. Um, you know, they're presenting it as as well. You can have your cake and eat it too. And oh, by the way, you can screw the feds over at the same time. Um, but there is a case. Uh, but what I, you know, the the two things I find most offensive uh, or. Maybe that's the wrong word. The things I find most odious about the the idea of an Alberta pension plan. The first thing is just the un-Canadianness of it. Um, you know, we're all in this together. That's the whole idea of a national pension plan. It makes us stronger. It it you know you get economies of scale with the money that's invested on our behalf. Um, we can move around from province to province. We can take jobs. You know, if you if you if you're in the Maritimes and the economy is not great and Alberta's humming, you can move there, work 
come back home and not have to worry about like your pension and your payments and how that all lines up. It's all clean. It's all easy. Um, and the idea that we would push an idea and a, and a, you know, a number uh, uh, that we think we're entitled to uh, of the pension money that would require other Canadians to pay more just to get the same benefits they'd always thought they were going to get. It's just, it's such an un-Canadian idea. And I know there are people in Alberta who will say, well, to hell with the rest of Canada because they've been screwing us over for years on equalization or on oil and gas or whatever. I mean, fine. If that's the way you want to look at the country, um, I guess fill your boots. But it's certainly not how I experience it. I don't think it's how most Canadians experience it. And, and it's corrosive uh, to the idea of a country. The other part of it that's that's odious is the way in which she is lying to Albertans, right? You know, if you want to make your case for an Alberta pension plan and you want to throw government money behind it, I guess, you know, I guess that's okay. But you can't put your thumb, it's not even your thumb, the whole, the, the whole body weight of the government of Alberta on the scale on behalf of one side and, and tell people that it's going to be a way that it isn't, you know, the way that they're framing it, it sounds like, well, we have a referendum, uh, we vote yes, and then the, the federal government gives in to, to what we're demanding. And, and that's not how it works. The way it works is that if we vote yes on a referendum and we decide we want to pull out from the Canada Pension Plan, which, by the way, is permanent, uh, we, don't get to, we don't get to come back a few years later and go, whoops-a-daisy, you know, take these back seas. We didn't want to do that. Uh, this, is, this is a one and done. Um, but the way that it's sort of being presented is like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll, Canada will send us the check and we'll go on our merry way. No, the federal finance minister... And if it's a conservative, they're going to approach it the exact same way as the as Christopher Freeland would. Will decide how much money uh, ultimately gets sent to Alberta uh, uh, under this arrangement, and it won't be the 350 billion or whatever it is that Alberta is dreaming about. It'll be probably half of that, uh, possibly less than half of that, and that changes all the math. It changes all the numbers, and that's not something that that our province, our government, seems to want to tell people. So it's just. He's just lying to people, misleading people. Uh, we're wasting so much political energy on this. And, and it is such a nothing burger when we have so many more important things to be discussing. Um, but that does seem to be this government's MO, um, is to kind of make everything a fight with Ottawa and, and bend the rules uh, where and how they, they feel they need to. Let's talk. Let's drag energy policy back into this conversation. Uh, the premier prior to... I think it's probably 2019, 2020. I think she was on a podcast and maybe she's talked about this elsewhere, but she, she said, you know, if we had an Alberta pension plan, we could do invest some of those capital in uh, Alberta oil and gas companies. <laughs> and we know, I mean, she used to be an, an oil and gas lobbyist only months before she became premier in, in uh, 2022. And her ba political base is largely in the service sector and the small producers. And the small producers are the ones who are having trouble getting capital. The big guys, you know, if you're Suncor and you're Imperial Oil and so on, you know, investors and, and financial institutions uh, will, give you, will give you the money that you need. But if you're a small producer, uh, and I'll tell the story of Donnie Bobasell if I haven't done it already in this podcast, but Donnie Bobasell, I interviewed him earlier this year uh, about his new company, which is Innova Hydrogen, uh, and he is a veteran oil guy. He and his little team, uh, they were in oil and gas and they would attract investment and they would build up production, sell it off. It's a well-known story in Alberta. And he, and he said, you can't do that anymore. It's done. The, the Only the very select teams now have access to capital. And so we had, you know, if we wanted to stay in any kind of an, the energy business, we had to look outside of traditional oil and gas. And that just illustrates the problem that these companies have with gaining access. And I'm sure they're salivating at the thought of having an Alberta pension plan available to invest in them. Now, do you give that, it's a bit of a rumor at this point, uh, do you give it any credence? I do. Uh, so, you know, in fairness, Finance Minister Nate Horner was on Ryan Jesperson's show recently, and he seemed to say pretty clearly, we're not going down that road. We're not going to do what Quebec has done with its pension money, you know, in terms of investing in projects of, quote, provincial importance. You know, it, he seemed to make it very clear that that was 
not on the table, despite that being in the survey that the government has sent out to people, the, the ridiculous one-sided push-pull of a survey that doesn't give them the option of saying, no, I don't want anything to do with this. It says, you know, do you want to have more cake or more sprinkles? Um, but I just can't, I can't see them not wanting to do this on some level, or at least not keeping it as an option, especially as you say, given where her base of support is. It's not the oil sands producers who I think will be okay in terms of access to capital, if only because they'll be able to probably internally finance their operations going forward, uh, just because the amount of cash flow they they will probably have. But the the smaller, you know, uh, exploratory companies, the service companies, they are going to be starved out. Uh, you're already seeing that in terms of the the multiples that these companies are getting. Uh, the publicly traded companies, the you know the 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 price to earnings multiple, the price to cash flow multiple, it is getting smaller and smaller because investors are less and less willing to bet on their long-term health. So yeah, uh, having access to, even if it's $150 billion in capital, probably sounds pretty attractive to them. And that's, again, that's, that's a, a risk that isn't being flagged by the government. Uh, it isn't a risk that I think most Albertans are particularly aware of. Um, and it's one that's hard to talk about because it just gets mixed up with all the other fear mongering around the energy transition and the federal government. And they're, you know, the premier Smith the other day said that bill C 69 was about bringing Alberta to its knees, you know, like I, it's just such uh, overheated language and it's such a um, emotional conversation that it's, it's hard to have sort of a sober actuarial uh, conversation with people about like, well, what are the long-term risks and and what are the dangers of, you know, putting your putting your pension money to work in an industry where you're already massively exposed to it? You know, like there there's a double risk uh, in in an Alberta pension in that, you know, if the oil and gas industry sort of continues to uh, you know follow the road that we think both of it, you and I think it's on in terms of. Um, maybe not keeping up with the energy transition and maybe being in trouble down the road. Number one, that'll be bad for an Alberta pension plan because it will mean the demographics that, that it all depends on having more young people will invert, right? You know, we're not going to be attracting as many young people here because the oil and gas industry has been the magnet for that uh, demographic reality. So that's one bad thing. And then the second bad thing is, is suddenly we're investing the pension money in an industry that is less and less. Those returns are probably not going to be great. And suddenly, you know, you're going to need to to raise people's uh, contributions, which was never supposed to be part of the the the, pop, the promise here, right? And it's not hard to see a situation 20, 30 years down the road where people who are in the Canada Pension Plan are not contributing more; they're getting the same benefits, and people in an Alberta Pension Plan are getting the worst of both worlds rather than the best of both worlds. So, what we're seeing here is an example of misinformation uh, on a particular issue that has it has energy energy implications any energy industry uh, implications uh i want to mention something that came up in the world petroleum congress which is about a month ago in calgary and uh, i was there reporting and i went to uh premier smith's press conference and if the there was only one theme at this at this gathering and it was supposed to be about oil and gas and the energy transition but what it really was is uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, Amin Nasser, and uh, Darren Woods, the CEO of ExxonMobil, kind of led this. And they said, look, uh, it's not about the displacement of oil and gas by electric technologies. It's about addition to. And so the energy transition is not displacement. It's about lowering the emission from oil and gas production. So they're re trying to re redefine what the energy transition means. And this is all a narrative exercise, right? It's a pushback mm -hmm. against climate policies. And in the press conference, Premier Smith spent some time attacking the International Energy uh, Agency as a, 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 a political radical, a radical advocacy uh, organization, which anybody, if anybody knows the history of the International Energy Agency is bizarre. It started 50 years ago after the first uh, Arab oil embargo. It's been an oil and gas forecasting and, and, and you know, uh, like a statistical analysis kind of organization for most of its 
and still is for that matter. It's mm-hmm. still in oil and gas. But this is, you know, so here's an example of the attack on expertise. And, you know, we're seeing it. We're seeing it uh, from her, some of her cabinet ministers, from Rob Anderson, her her probably right-hand man in her, her office, the attack on journalists, the, mm-hmm. attack on, the attack on economists who don't, who don't, you know, who, who speak up uh, and criticize. Trevor Tome, Professor Trevor Tome, the economist from the University of Calgary, has been raked over the coals for his very mild and evidence-based critique of the uh, Alberta pension plan. And so this seems to be a prominent theme. And I, I think it's more pronounced now than it was even under, even when Jason Kenney was premier of Alberta. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think to some extent, Daniel Smith and her, her team are better at, um, at playing this particular game than even Jason Kenney was. Um, they are, they are more willing to kind of, break norms and and engage in populist theater that, you know, Jason Kenney, for for all of his pretending about being this sort of man of the people driving a blue truck, is the most Laurentian elite uh, Alberta has ever seen. You know, the, the man, you know, enjoys theater. He enjoys operas. He enjoys fine food and wine. He probably, like, listens to his religious services in Latin. You know, like, he, he is a very erudite sophisticated guy uh, he played a populist but he wasn't a populist daniel smith is a populist like she through and through she is not pretending um you know and the fact that she spent years doing you know doing uh, being a radio host kind of helped her develop the the ability to kind of listen to empathize to you know those really core populist politician skills um and so she's very formidable uh in that respect and you know, I, I'm talking to somebody later today about this, but the th- I think the one thing that progressives, one thing, there's many things, but one of the things that progressives have really kind of failed to realize on this front is that to to win the the kind of battle over how we frame this issue, it's not about facts, it's not about reports, it's not about data, it's about stories. And we do not tell good stories about this and they do uh and you sort of saw that at um you know at the at the the global petroleum congress or the world petroleum congress where you know there was this very concerted very deliberate attempt to kind of tell a different story about the energy transition and obviously it's self-serving um it, it is one that plays entirely into um this you know the the, the interests of saudi Aramco and and the government of alberta and, and the rest of the oil and gas industry but it's attractive to people who want to believe that the future is going to be like the past, that things will be okay for them, that they don't have to change. Um, and I think, you know, I was talking to someone else about this over Twitter DMs the other day, but it's tempting to think that the, the further we get into the energy transition and, and the more the kind of evidence becomes obvious about where we're going, people will relent, people will, will you know, drop their, their shields and say, okay, fair enough. I think it's going to go the other way. I think people will become more strident, more um, oppositional to to information and to the sources of people who are trying to tell it to them. So, you know, the the, the medical doctors, the environmental experts, the engineers, whoever it is, the economists who are saying like this is the way things are. If the choice is between listening to them and having to change your worldview or attacking them, a lot of people will go for the attack. Uh, and right now we have a government that is kind of laying the foundations for that uh, on almost a daily basis. Let, uh, let me give you one point of view on that. Um, uh, I'm writing a column, uh, and I have been for a while. I need to get this thing finished. It's it's called The Incumbent's Dilemma. And essentially, when a, a corporation is faced with disruption, so new technologies, mm-hmm. it's, you know, there has moved into the marketplace, it's, it's, its market share is threatened, and it has to respond in some way. Uh, it has two basic options. The first one is it can, it can pivot to a business, a new business model or a revised, modified business model that's more suitable to where the market is going. It can do that. Uh, and you could see the example of the, of the automobile industry, how the incumbents, the OEMs, are trying to, you know, 
it's not a, a, the new electric vehicles have a different propulsion system and they have power electronics and they have batteries, but they're still cars. They're still trucks. And so they are making a pivot into electric transportation. But if you're Suncor or CNRL or Imperial Oil, Oil or Synovus, where's your pivot? You really don't have a pivot. And you can look at the examples of companies like uh, BP and Shell who have tried to pivot. I mean, there was mm -hmm. talk not that long ago of Shell becoming some kind of an, like an electric utility in Europe, that sort of thing. And they've all retrenched from that. They've all retreated. And the the oil sands the big oil sands companies in particular, uh, I mean, Suncor, here's a good example. You know, they were the two years ago, Mark Little, who was then their CEO, was writing uh, in, um, uh, I forget where, where he wrote it, doesn't matter. Uh, but he was writing about how the, the oil sands could lead the energy transition in Canada. And then now they've got a new CEO, Rich Kruger, who just said, nope, we're done with that. We've been focusing too much on the energy transition. We need to go back to our knitting. And they double down on the status quo. And for them, that means reducing your cost of production per barrel so that you can remain competitive and decarbonizing because they understand very well that carbon pricing or of some kind is in their future and, and emissions intensity is going to be a competitive disadvantage if it's, a, if it continues to be as high as it is. So they, so they double down on the status quo. And I see Danielle Smith for the in Alberta industry writ large as like being the shield for the status quo, fending off the feds, managing the narrative, rallying the troops, all of that kind of thing. And one of the, the part pieces of that incumbents, response the doubling down in the status quo is use of misinformation to influence both the provincial and the federal uh energy conversation to impede to slow things down and keep keep those forces of change at bay as long as possible so that's my take on it i don't know what do you think it's tricky. Um, there, there's some examples in Europe of, you know, I think in Italy uh, uh, and in Norway of, of oil companies, energy companies that have sort of really kind of fully pivoted, um, but they tend to be smaller in scale. Um, and uh, you know, I think the European market is just sort of fundamentally different, uh, you know, given that the difficulty of, of extracting natural resources there and, and uh, the relative ease in Canada uh, than, than the Canadian market. You know, I, I don't hate the idea of the oil sands companies just focusing on reducing their costs and most importantly, reducing their carbon output. I think those are things that they might be good at. Um, I don't think that they're well suited to be uh, diverse energy companies, because that requires a level of risk-taking that they simply don't know how to do. Um, these are companies, for all their talk about being entrepreneurs and being mavericks and and whatnot, they are the scariest of scaredy cats. Um, they, they will only go when they've seen someone else go. It's why carbon capture and storage right now is basically a bunch of CEOs looking around at each other going, are you going to go first? Are you going to go first? Are you going to go first? Why don't we put a money into this this pathways alliance and maybe we can all wait to go first together? Um, you know, it, it, it is sort of the uh, it, it's just the nature of this industry to not take risks. And so they're not going to be good at going out there and, and refashioning their company as, as, you know, a wind and solar producer or as a, you know, uh, a hydrogen producer even. Um, you know, maybe they could, you know, do what GE used to do in the past, which was kind of fund or set up new business units that would take care of that and then and then they would sort of you know the the the, the financial stuff would be taken care of by the by the parent company but they would take they out of their own culture take their own risks and so forth but you know i'm just i think they need to focus on what they can do well uh and what they can do well is engineering stuff um managing big projects and, and so i think you know, if we can get them off the line on some of this carbon capture stuff, that would be helpful. But they're not going to be the ones that build the, you know, the big major new uh, energy infrastructure in this company. It's going to be someone else. And, and maybe federal policy and provincial policy needs to be more focused around how do we support the growth of those new champions rather than trying to get these dinosaurs 
to turn into uh you know to turn into grizzly bears i agree 100 uh, percent. and the importance of this debate and the role of misinformation in deflecting or, or misleading the debate is that it's all about protecting the big the oil companies of any size because we can't forget you know smith's affinity for the the little guy uh but it takes so it sucks so much oxygen out of the conversation that we don't get around to to talking about okay if the oil companies aren't going to diversify and they aren't going to do things like advanced materials manufacturing using bitumen as a as a feedstock or CO two using CO two captured CO two as a feedstock to make things with then then we that that then calls for an ent entirely different strategy on the part of the province because somebody has to lead that strategic uh, uh process to to uh, you know what is what is it you have to build the ip like alberta innovates is doing with bitumen beyond combustion then you've got to you put in place the policies in the regulatory environment maybe some financial support to bring in the to build the companies that need to be to be built all of that sort of thing and that is not what this government is doing you know, uh, Smith and the UCP are laser focused on protecting the status quo, you know, fighting with the federal government. And there's no room to have the conversation that you and I are talking about where we say, OK, post-combustion, disrupted oil and gas industry, got to have something else. We need to build this other thing. How do we go about it? What does it look like and how do we go about it? Yeah, I, I agree. I thing is, I don't blame I don't hold Daniel Smith or the UCP in contempt for being who they are. Um, they've never promised to be a forward-looking, future-oriented political movement that that you know is really invested in uh, in Alberta being kind of uh, a modern uh, and open society. They, you can't blame a leopard for doing leopard stuff. And that's just who they are. I mean, Daniel, the, the, the creation of Wild Rose back in the day was a response to Ed Stelmack's uh, royalty review. They have always been a party that put the interests of the oil and gas industry and specifically kind of the, the, the wealthy entrepreneurs within the oil and gas industry first. And so for them to continue doing that is not surprising. Uh, and, and I, you know, in some respects, they should be doing that. That is their political. That is their promise to their constituency, and now they're upholding it. Good for them. the The blame falls on the progressive side. Uh, they have been utterly incapable of developing their own story, their own narrative, their own way to talk about this issue. And you and I have banged on about this for years now. Um, it's why the NDP didn't win the election in, this past spring. It's why the federal liberals have had no traction uh, on this issue. It's why they're getting killed in the polls right now. Because progressives do not know how to talk about the economy uh, in the year 2023, they used to, in you know, in different ways. You know, I think of the the old NDP under Ed Broadbent. Uh, they were very literate in matters of the economy. They you know certainly had their own their own story, but they they did not shy away from talking about it. Uh, and liberals were were very uh, fluent, conversant in talking about the economy. And it seems like every part of the sort of progressive ascendancy right now, federally and even provincially, you know, with exceptions in BC, with exceptions in, in Manitoba, just don't know how to do it. They're not interested. They don't have the skills and it's why they're getting absolutely killed. I mean, if you, if you, if, if, if Daniel Smith called the snap election tomorrow, don't know why she would do that, but let's imagine she would, she'd win 60 seats. She would win, she would. you know, compared to the, you know, the high 40, she, she might win, she might win 70. Um, to be perfectly honest with you. So progressives need to get their heads out of their asses on this immediately. Uh, or, you know, the, or the beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, it's, you know, they just, it just need to look at what Wab Canoe did in Manitoba, where he started the campaign by promising a tax cut. I know progressives hate that, but it took that issue off the table or look at BC right now where David Eby, if you look at recent polls and, and map them onto seats, is apparently projected to win 75 seats in the province out of a total of, I think, 80 to, to low 90s. Like where this is working, it works because the progressives know how to talk about the economy. And, you know, nowhere is that more needed than in Alberta and nowhere is that more deficient than in Alberta. Uh, I would agree. Uh, 
I'm on the uh, uh, BC government's uh, press release uh, list, and the number of, of of press releases I get about the various programs and policies that the government has to uh, build out clean tech, build out renewables, build out electric transportation and all of its infrastructure. It, it's just a blizzard. And they started with the, you know, the uh, Clean BC, which is what, 2018, I think. And mm-hmm. and then they uh, slowly and, and more slowly than, than some people wanted to uh, wanted, but nevertheless, they 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 do very deliberately have built out built out the strategy, put in place the programs, funded the programs, beginning to implement them, beginning to show successes, and and BC's economy now is very strong. You could argue just yeah. as, as strong as as Alberta's. Uh, you're starting to see some of that in Quebec. You know, with the rise of a, a battery industry and and electric transportation. You know, with with uh, electric buses manufacturers and and so on. So. There, there are models, and uh, we can look to in Canada. Uh, you know, if Alberta, if Alberta was interested in learning from other provinces, and the, and I guess this is where I keep coming back to Smith, and I, I appreciate your argument. You know that she's a leopard and she's behaving like a leopard, but we need something other than a leopard uh, in this. And and uh, okay, so fine. You and I have both beaten up on Rachel Notley and the NDP for a long time over this this very issue. Doesn't understand. <laughs> Doesn't understand energy. Doesn't have an energy game. Doesn't have an energy narrative. Blah blah blah. Uh, something's got to change. I, and I mm-hmm. and I look at Alberta and I just don't. It's not going to be well. I suppose at some point, if if Notley steps down, a new leader for the NDP could come in with a vision for the energy transition and what the energy economy of Alberta could look like. That could happen. I don't know how likely it is. Uh, well, you know what else? You know what else could happen? The the leader who replaces her could be even worse on this file. Um, yep. and, and there, there's no shortage of candidates within that caucus up in Edmonton. Uh, and no, I'm not referring to my, my personal favorite Rocky Pancholi, who would be great on it. Um, but there are others who are alleged, you know, apparently closer to Notley who, uh, have no interest in talking about the economy, have no interest in saying anything nice about, about Alberta's oil and gas industry. And that, that would be a disaster, uh, for this conversation. So, so as to who's going to step up, right. It's not going to be the oil and gas companies so long as the environment remains the one we're in. You know, if oil is 70, 80, 90, 100 dollars a barrel, they're going to keep on keeping on. They, they have no inclination, you know, as we discussed earlier, they, they have no inclination to rock the boat at the best of times. Uh, and so they're certainly not going to do it now. The only time I think we get those people stepping up and speaking out is if is if we see. Let's imagine you know, Saudi Arabia decides tomorrow, you know, they've, they've run their numbers and for them, it makes sense going forward to, to uh, push for market uh, share rather than price. Uh, and they have, to, by the way, they have 3 million barrels per day of spare capacity. So let's say they flood the market again, like they did in 2014, prices go down to 20 bucks a barrel. I, and by the way, that's not out of the question. Uh, Saudi Arabia, this is the thing that, that, you know, folks like Daniel Smith, who cozy up to the Saudis, seem to fail to understand is that they hold the hammer they decide what is best for them and if they decide that what is best for them is flooding the market they will do it um that's when i think we would see people step up and start to talk a little differently but as long as as the pricing environment remains what it is i i just don't see anyone having the courage uh to really kind of change the conversation well, let's drag this conversation back to the premise, so the, the topic we're going to talk about, which is misinformation. And I want to talk briefly, you know, to kind of wrap up our, our chat about your buddy and mine, David Parker of Take Back Albert. Hmm. And uh, I don't know if anybody, if everybody detected my sarcasm in my tone of voice. Because <laughs> I, uh, I so. don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to be quoted. Uh, I don't want to have that quote yep. uh, on Twitter. Anyway, so let me let me read just one of uh, Parker's many uh, tweets about these kinds of things. And this came uh, oh about uh, about a week ago. He said the beauty of the new right is that we don't care about your credentials. We mock them. They are given to you by corrupt little propaganda machines. Okay, so the University of Calgary, the University of Alberta are now propaganda machines. They mean mm-hmm. nothing, and we don't respect them. Your experts are just shills for the current thing. Which is hilarious because the current he he is the definition of a, a shill for the current thing, which is the oil and gas Correct. status quo. So the now 
this is David Parker, but to take back Alberta as most, uh, anyway, anybody who's involved in Alberta politics, but we have lots of listeners from out of the country. So take back Alberta as this sort of grassroots, very socially conservative evangelical Christian organization that has managed to capture half of the board of the United Conservative Party of, El- uh, of Alberta and yep. and was instrumental in deposing former kicking, basically kicking out Premier Jason Kenney and replacing him with Danielle Smith last year. And now they're, you know, the AGM is coming up and, and it looks like Take Back Alberta is going to have the other half of the board. So this is a guy who, for all of, you know, he's a bit of a cartoon character, but he's got clout because he can organize and he's pushing misinformation. And that, I don't know, your thoughts. I mean, it's more than misinformation, right? It, it is, um, you know, he seems to be directing uh, his followers to, you know, to, to really kind of uh, hate the people at Alberta Health Services, to, you know, to, to hate doctors, to hate nurses, to hate anyone with credentials who is smarter than them. And, and there's some bizarre sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, psychodrama going on here with with David, where I don't know, did he not get accepted to Oxford, and now he just is taking his anger out on all educated people? It's it's very strange, but it's also very reminiscent of of what's happening in the United States, where you have the sort of the the MAGA movement just uh, almost trying to like get back at the the smart kids for for having better lives than them and and more education than them, and it's it's obviously toxic to society. Um, it's also dangerous to Danielle Smith, whether she realizes it or not. I think she does. Um, but, you know, come the next AGM, it sounds pretty clear that Take Back Alberta will control the entire party. Uh, they might control literally all of it in terms of all the executive positions. And David Parker uh, is not someone who seems particularly comfortable being in the back room. He likes the attention. He likes the limelight. He likes jousting with people on Twitter. He likes posting videos of him giving speeches. Um, he might be coming for her job, whether she realizes it or not. I wondered um, about that. I, my, uh, Joanna, who, my wife and, and a partner in energy media, we've been talking about that very thing, speculating. And so you think that's a possibility? I mean, I don't, I think it would be very, very, very bad idea for him. Um, it would not end well. Uh, it would be funny. Uh it would be entertaining for sure. But, you know, this is someone who fancies himself as this sort of, you know, Napoleon-esque character and, you know, posts quotes from Napoleon and Napoleon's pictures on his Twitter profile. So he does not, you know, and maybe he's, maybe he's self-aware and, and this is all just sort of a, uh, you know, a kind of inside joke, but he doesn't strike me as being particularly self-aware. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think maybe he imagines that perhaps he could do a better job at some point and, and, you know, we, we will see that play out. I mean, you're right. We're already, it feels like we're heading towards a collision there on, on that front already because Alberta's COVID numbers are going up. You know, the number of people who are hospitalized with COVID are going up. It's very early in the season for this. Um, God forbid if our healthcare system gets to a point where we need to take measures and the government is forced, you know, kicking and screaming as per usual to do something about it. Who knows how he's going to react? Who knows how the Take Back Alberta crowd will respond to that? So, um, it, you know, it's all bad for the people who care about things like peace order and good government, which, which is supposed to be the values that this country was founded on. But, um, you know, chaos agents don't, don't value good government. They don't value peace. They don't value order. Um, and we are kind of being governed by, by chaos agents right now in Alberta. Um, it, it is a, it is a shame that we decided that that was the way to go um in our election but we you know now we get to live with the consequences well that that's kind of interesting i've never heard the situation in alberta described quite like that but i that resonates with me so what would be the role of misinformation and attacks on expertise for chaos agents how do they wield those as political weapons i mean you 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 actively want to uh undermine both the media and sources of authority that that extend beyond your 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 own political community, and so and, and this is sort of a, a a playbook for you know aspiring fascists everywhere, which is you you discredit the people in civil society who who are 
sort of you know respected and and respected beyond sort of whatever their political uh, beliefs are. And so you go after the doctors, you go after the the egghead professors, you go after the the experts who can you know who can bring facts into a conversation. That's why you know whenever Trevor Toome you know weighs in in his sort of wonderfully uh, unpolitical way. Uh, and just sort of brings the facts, he he gets a lot of heat for it because there are people who find him very threatening because he knows things. He is not swayed by by politics or by um, partisanship, and he simply brings the facts. And uh, the, there's nothing that a tin pot dictator dislikes more than someone who brings the facts. So, um, you know, anyone who's in those sorts of positions right now should expect that the attacks are going to continue. The you know they are going to, it is going to be made more and more uncomfortable for them to express their their professional or learned opinions uh people like david parker are going to deliberately turn up the temperature on them and they have to be ready for it um it's not pleasant so parker's parker's uh attacks on on experts and spread of misinformation is already having you know, we're already feeling the brunt of it, you and I, because we get attacked mm-hmm. by him all the time on, on Twitter. He calls us unhuman and uh, all sorts of other, you know, silly uh, schoolyard names. But, you know, energy media's journalism model is based on the interview of experts. That's what we do. I mean, that's how I learned reporting back in the 1980s. When you do a news story, you go out and interview people. That's a journalist's basic toolkit is the interview. Yep. Yep. And, and so what the, you know we've we've interpreted that as you know talking to energy experts and climate experts and technology experts and so on and and so I can see why you know a little energy media might be a target and of course you you've got a much better bigger audience you've got a bigger megaphone than we do so you're an obvious an obvious target but I'd be very curious we're we're going to we're embarking on a series of uh, presentations and speeches out into Alberta, into rural Alberta. Like next week, I'll be in Lethbridge talking to uh, Sackpaw, and I'll talk be talking to the uh, Lethbridge, I think it's Chamber of Commerce and uh, and business groups, and we'll be doing that, you know, in various places. And I'd be very curious to see what the response is. How much of that, the the, the in the Q and A, and then the response that I get to the speeches kind of reflects does it reflect parker does it ref, uh it maybe maybe i don't know certainly it'll be the status quo kind of approach to oil and gas i get that uh it's not calgary or edmonton but anyway that's that's something that maybe you and i can have a, t- a chance to talk about in the new year we'll we'll see where that goes yeah i mean i think people are generally you know more polite way more polite in person than they are on this you know on wretched platforms like Twitter or over email. Um, there's something about not seeing the whites in someone else's eyes that, that makes people able to say things that they would never say in person. Um, but, uh, you know, the, Parker is trying to create a culture war, right? And people in who are sort of signed up for that cause, uh, there's a certain righteousness to what they think they're doing. So, uh, you know, I'll be interested to hear what the feedback is like on the ground, you know, I, I think in some respects, we're practiced at this, you know, we're used to getting nasty tweets, nasty emails, and it doesn't, doesn't bother us. Uh, You know, it's, it's annoying that it's part of the job, but it's part of the job. Uh, The people I worry about are people like teachers and, you know, academics. I think doctors, to some extent, have learned how to deal with this. But People who did not sign up for this part of the job, you know, the, the give and take part of the job, the, the, you know, political sparring part of the job, because I think for a lot of them, it will diminish their willingness to contribute to these conversations. They'll simply say, like, it's not worth it. I don't need this. I'm busy enough. I don't want my family getting you know, bothered by this. I'm just opting out. And that's exactly what people like David Parker want. The more that we opt out of out of the conversation, the more that we opt out of the fight for kind of uh, a respect for the facts and a civil engagement over over common interests, the more people like him win. Uh, and, well, I, I have and... an anecdote about that. So in the course of doing the Unethical Oil series, I probably, I've interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of scientists uh, in an attempt 
an attempt to understand things like, you know, tailings pond, uh, and, and their uh, and their problems. And one of the things I'm finding is that some of those scientists who have been more a little more vocal than others are now saying they're getting pushback, and they're reluctant to to you know maybe they don't want to do more interviews maybe they don't want to uh you know appear on television interviews because they they just aren't built to take that kind of abuse really and so one of the things this does is it as you mentioned i mean it, it intimidates the experts it intimidates the learned people who have the information that we need to know and then journalists can't can't get them on the record and I, I'm finding yeah. that in the last six months, that's become more of a problem for me personally than it has in the past. Yeah, I'm sh I have no doubt. Um, you know, I guess the thing I would say to to folks like that is this is the world we're in right now. Uh, it's not nice and it's not pretty and it's not the way any of us would want it to be. But the choice now is not do we get to go back to the way it used to be or do we hear the choice for the things you believe in and people's right and ability to understand the world as it is, or do you give in to the, the tin pot dictators? Uh, and I would suggest that maybe the, the consequences of fighting are a little uncomfortable in the near term. The, co the consequences of giving in are much, much worse the further out we go. Yeah, I think that we all we have to do is look south of the border uh, to see what those consequences look like. I would agree. Mm -hmm. Max, thank you very much. Always a, a joy to talk to you. And uh, we will no doubt be uh, revisiting some of these uh, themes in the future. And we can only hope that there's some progress between now and the next time you you and I talk. So thank you. Indeed, no no doubt at all. And and just a, a, a plug while I before I go for uh, for my newsletter. That's the new thing. Everyone's doing newsletters. So I'm doing a newsletter over at the National Observer. So uh, you can honestly, you can probably just Google Max Fawcett newsletter. I link to it all the time on Twitter. Uh, sign up. It's free. You get a weekly newsletter with with some fun bonus content. And, uh, you know, then we can stay in touch uh, if and when Twitter finally blows up. Yes, I'm a, I'm a subscriber and I can tell you that uh, I read it every week. So thanks for doing that. Excellent. Thank you.